Hello, and welcome to another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny broadcasting high above sunny and warm Dongcheng District of Beijing. Joining me from his air-conditioned splendor up in the northeastern realm of Beijing. I'm not even really sure where. It's like somewhere beyond the third ring road. There might as well be dragons where he lives. David Moser. I, yeah, my air-conditioned splendor. Right, yeah. I, I actually don't... My air conditioner is broken here, so I'm actually preparing as I guess you are, or maybe it's not for the same reason, to do what the Chinese called bi shu, which is to escape the heat, the summer heat, which is coming soon. And I, I read in the newspapers that China is going to be experiencing some of the hottest uh, temperatures on record, rivaling, if not, and maybe equaling enough, if not rivaling uh, last year's hot temperatures. So I'm getting out of here, uh, going back to the States for a while, to, so get a dose of family that I haven't had for four years, three or four years. When are you leaving? Uh, the end of July. I'm getting out sooner, and uh, I'm leaving in about a week to go back to New Hampshire for a few weeks, you know, kind of see the family, uh, extended family, get out of the heat. Um, you know, I'll be arriving just in time for black fly and tick season. So that's always a, a big, it's always a, you know, a big <laughs> festival in, in, in New Hampshire. And then I'll be back, I think, just in time to wave at you from my seat on the airplane as I descend and you're taking off. And so we may have to tape a few of these over the summer through the miracle of remote technology. Yes, right, right. But I do have something uh, positive to report, which yesterday I spent most of the afternoon getting a tour of the newly opened CET program that I was the academic director for for over 10 years, back still at Capital Normal University. And uh, right now, just a, 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 a Chinese as a second language program, but uh, lots of students, enthusiastic students, surprisingly large numbers for this sort of summer program and then more in the fall. And uh, I look around and I see foreigners everywhere. These uh, strange creatures who, you know, utter sounds that don't resemble Mandarin. So I, I'm sort of feeling a little bit uh, more optimistic about the presence of foreigners here, especially my my countrymen and women. As you know, uh, we've talked about in the in the past. Just uh, I guess last year during the COVID period, there was something like only 300 American students studying in China. So. I think that may, number may well have doubled just in the past few weeks as they kind of slowly begin to come back. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, David, because one of the things uh, we're seeing this year, China has reopened to the world after the pandemic that we're not supposed to talk about anymore. You know, there was a, a, some clips of uh, Chairman Xi welcoming foreigners back to China. There's been some articles, you know, trying to promote international trade and that, you know, China's ready for business. And yet, in when we when you're living here, you feel that the spaces of international culture and culture in general are starting to shrink to you know almost barely survivable pockets. And you know so that's what I want to talk about today because we're we're looking around at the landscape and many organizations, many places, many spaces, many activities are no longer safe zones for, for people to act, whether it's LG, the LGBTQ center in Beijing, whether it's foreigners performing on stage, either musically or in terms of doing comedy, or you know whether it's simply you know, living in a place where the rhetoric has 
increasingly turned very negative and nasty, which I'm sure, if you're Chinese living in the United States, is a familiar feeling. But for those of us who are here, it has a it has a dramatic it has an effect. And so I want to talk to you today a little bit about that and your own impressions of that. Somebody who is part of these cultural spaces, and of course, try to put this in some perspective. Do you feel like the spaces are closing as a as a musician? And for those of you who don't know, David is a, apart from being an incredibly talented linguist, academic, scholar, teacher, and podcaster, is also uh, one of Beijing's best jazz pianists. He performs regularly with the Orchestra. Am I getting that right? The name? Yeah, the Acu Orchestra, right? Acu Orchestra. The... So, David, what's your take from the ground? How do you, how do you feel? Are you feeling the same thing I am? I am indeed, and we've had this discussion, you know, privately several times, many times. I might just uh, put a disclaimer quickly. Uh, you know, Andrew Field on our last podcast was very quick to to inform us that we were being Beijing Beijingocentric, uh, Jingocentric, uh, in that uh, you know this this situation is not quite as bad in other parts of China. He claims, but we're but we're stuck in Beijing, so I mean, why should we care about any place but where we are? So we we'll could just be Beijing centric here. Uh, you know something. You know, I I think we've been here. I think you you and I have been here a long time. I've been here uh, much longer, but I think you were here during those uh, during this closing down period that we're talking about. So we speak the same language. I think people who come here, these these uh, new students that are coming fresh off the boat here to study Chinese, those those suckers, <laughs> they don't know what they're in for. But when I when I when I think of what they will see here and how they will perceive the situation here. They can't possibly know what was there and is no longer there, and what was there and probably will never come back. They just have no sense of what what that history, other than uh, haggard eyewitnesses such as us, who might tell them that no one's going to. That's not going to be on the lips of most of the younger people that they're uh, dealing with because they didn't see it either, or they didn't you know see it. But if you want to start with just the LGBTQ issue. Some people coming here now would be surprised to learn that there even was something called the LGBTQ Center, which was a fairly active NGO. Really, it was a you know it was a uh, it was well known to the government, the municipal uh, government, that this is that this program was there, and it wasn't the only one. There was more than just one LGBTQ organization, and we used to actually send our students to do internships at these places. So yeah, as did we, as did we. Yeah, as you as did the CIA and lots of other programs, right? And that was uh, the the very problem of of in of uh, internships was a little bit of a gray area, and there, there was a lot of talk about what, you know, what which interns you could do in Shanghai versus Beijing, but it was a gray area, and you know all gray areas have activity. That's why they're gray. I mean, there there was some activity there. They're not they're not completely black. There was not only that. There was a kind of a burgeoning uh, talk. That you don't even hear now of Tongzhi uh, Wenhua, comrade culture. That the word Tongzhi being co-opted, meaning comrade, to to sort of be a coded word for the for the gay community. And there were Tongzhi websites that that were not blocked, maybe because they hadn't been discovered yet. But it was quite a lively kind of and fairly open and uncensored space there where people could. You know, access, see what the mood were. There were all sorts of discussions and sort of BB bulletin board type things. There were also actually LGBTQ. Although back there was no Q back then, as I recall, but it was LGBT、uh, film festivals 
uh, as not so far ago as I think it was around 2013 or 14, I did a Seneca podcast where we interviewed uh, this this LGBT filmmaker named Fan Popo, Popo uh, mm. who was uh, quite an activist. He always got a little bit of pressure when he put on these uh, film festivals, and he had his own films. He was a documentarian and a, and a filmmaker, and he had uh, some success showing his films in Germany and other places in Europe, the you know uh, LGBT festivals back then. And there were even a TV show that was broadcast, I don't know if it was broadcast uh, on the CCTV Network. It may have been on satellite TV. I can't remember. It's still available on the internet and on YouTube, even uh, or at least part of it. It, it was. It's. It's not. It was. They called it an, uh, a gay or an LGBTQ themed series, TV series. It wasn't really that the theme was LGBTQ. It was more that they had a, a sort of sympathetic gay characters in the program in the show, and it was called Addiction, Shangyin Addiction. You know, it was covered in all the major newspapers and it played for a long time. I don't know what its fate. Looking back on that time, which was not long ago, you know, it is uh, 10 years goes really fast for me anyway. And I look now at the scene and I think, my heavens, this is there is none of that left. There's a, hardly a shred of that left in Beijing, at least. But I don't think anywhere, even with a, with a, a more burgeoning Internet. I don't think there's any trace of these things. You don't hear anything about Tongzhi culture and not just the closing of the LGBTQ center, but also all kinds of public displays that you would see uh, sort of mock gay marriages that would be a kind of a public joke or kind of a way of calling attention to their plight. And as I recall, and I've, I'm sure of this because I actually took my uh, some of my one of my family members who who is bisexual to a gay club, one of many. Uh, that was fer- fairly well known. It was called one of them was called Destinations. I don't know if you know who that is. It's, it's near the Gunti, a little bit not too far from Gunti. And I took took them there uh, and checked out the scene. And and it was pretty well. In fact, the, you know, the, the reason I knew it, I just asked around, and people said, "Oh yeah, sure, everyone knows there's a, there's a Destinations at that club." There there was a very op- there was a lot of optimism among the community because they said, "Look, oh, there was even a gay app called Blued, B L U E D." I think it was used other parts of the world, but it certainly was the biggest one in China. Mostly, I think it was just for men, I think. I'm not sure. You know, there was that and it was not, seemingly was not blocked. I don't know its fate or how it got uh, transmitted, you know, around to different users, cell phone users or whatever. For someone who came here with no uh, historical knowledge of that or historical awareness of all that came before, you might come to the conclusion that China has never had such a, such a, a trajectory and never had such communities. And it was just one of those things that just doesn't exist in China because they don't allow it. It's not true. For a long time, it was allowed. Once they took it off the psychiatric uh, psychological disorders, then you know a lot a lot of activity came, you know, because they could no longer arrest them on the basis of being mentally ill or or being dangerous or anything like that. And this, uh, by the way, this none of this happened. As with all these things, it doesn't happen overnight. It's a it's a death by a thousand cuts. There, there's a closing here. There's a little bit of pressure there. There's people who leave just because they can't. And uh, Pat, uh, Fan Popo is a good example. He kind of I think he's skedaddled. Maybe we might have to check on that. But he didn't just stop doing documentaries or wanting to do them or doing the activism. I think it just became a, not a viable choice for him here to do this openly. And that's how it happens. It just slowly, slowly, slowly goes away, and we, we get used to the lack. 
And then people forget there was even something there. And now we just go back to this void, which has no, um, in the near future, has no chance of cropping up again, as I can see it. It's always a combination of factors. And it's not just relating to the, the, the LGBTQ community and their different organizations. But when it comes to the closing of these spaces, David, what do you think the percentage is? What percentage, if for, take for example, the closing of the LGBTQ center, what percentage is we don't like NGOs in general because they're out, by definition, they're outside the party state orbit and therefore they're, they're, they're seen as kind of a grit, grit in the perfectly oiled machine that is the PRC. How much of it is an attitude which you hear a lot that not just in China, but also other parts of the global south uh, as well, that issues of relating to LGBTQ are kind of uh, Trojan horses for Western liberal values or Western values that are somehow antithetical to tradition here. That, you know, in inclusiveness, you know, not judging people based on their sexuality being kind of dangerous ideas that would lead to the unraveling of society. And what percentage of this third option is the current kind of low-key crisis or, or perceived crisis of masculinity that, that pokes its head up every once in a while uh, online in the state media, the, the worry about, you know, pop stars and actors who are not masculine enough or, you know, the worry that this next generation of uh, young men will not be, you know, butch enough, I guess, to fight to retake whatever island needs to be retaken in the coming years. So breaking it down between these things, uh, we just don't like NGOs, you know, a possible Trojan horse or Western values, crisis, perceived crisis of masculinity. What, what do you think? What do you think the mix is here? So that's actually, that's a very good question. The, the, the fact that these uh, LGBTQ organizations were NGOs, many of them, does have a lot to do with just the general uh, handling of NGOs in general. There was a, you know, a burgeoning sort of explosion of NGOs in the, in the, uh, the beginning of the 21st century, and they were largely unregulated. And they rose uh, because there was actually a need for them. Because, as we all know, the, one of the advantages of civil society, of, of the civil organizations and, and NGOs, is they often for, uh, have, uh, have the purpose or the function of supplementing or augmenting agendas or goals that the government has that is unable to cover because the, 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 uh, the, the issues are too vast and pervasive for any government policy to cover them all. So just like innocent uh, environmental NGOs, of which were there, there were many, we're doing things like uh, going around and doing what the government would like to be doing and was doing, but didn't have the, the money and wherewithal, which is to go and just check and see the compliance with environmental regulations on the part of companies, pollution levels in lakes and things like that. So they were actually doing good work that could supplement and help the government role of trying to eradicate pollution and, and things like that. So I used to tell my students, and you and I both stood up in front of students and told them a bunch of things about China that are now just complete bullshit and have to be uh, erased from our, at least our PPT, PPTs have all been thrown away long ago. But I used to tell students, you know, uh, yes, they don't like these NGOs because they're they're rowdy, unregulated. There's a lot of activity and uh, concerns that don't really jive with their uh, their goals or their, but, but, you know, they're not going to eradicate the whole uh, field of NGOs because they actually perform a function. And they if they're used in the right way, they can actually 
be a benefit society and augment the what you know the party's goals in, in maintaining stability and and you know prosperity and, and improving the aspects of society that are hard to to work on right boy was I ever wrong the, they now they all the NGOs were admittedly very uh, a very chaotic arena I mean I think I've heard this number which sounds incredibly large and I almost can't believe it but I've heard it many times that there was many as 1 million NGOs in China at one time uh, most of which were just off were off the radar it might have be just two or three people working on a website you know and getting uh, apprentices or volunteers to come and help them do something so it was a rowdy very crazy mixed up part of the economy a part of the of the civil society and it did need to be regulated uh, because there was a lot of nefarious things going on a lot of uh, unproductive doubling and tripling of function uh, no organization whatsoever and most mostly just off the books legally financially and and so forth but what they did was they they essentially killed the purpose of the independent uh, the, or killed the effectiveness of the unvetted uh, or uncontrolled NGOs because they simply with a sweep of the pen sort of made a rule that every foreign NGO and then I don't know I don't know the specifics I'm not an expert on this but they they had to uh, their sponsor or one of their overseers had to be the local police <laughs> So once you have the the, the local uh, department PSB or something, then right away there's immediately a, a hundreds thousands of, of NGOs that would just be shut down instantly because they were illegal or dealt with something. Now as far as this this social thing, they're still pushing at this. Uh, you know, young people are are much a, a part of this wave of LGBTQ and trans and binary as much as any other country really because it's just a fact of human nature. It's not something people are just going along. To be trendy, so all these effeminate men, it bothers them. You know, societies like this, they hate that. But there's really not much they can do about to completely censor and squelch it. The main thing is about all of these this, this censorious kind of mentality is they don't really care whether you really buy into their ideology or if you even agree with them. What they what they but what they don't want is a public display of it. Quite honestly, although the, the, you know the party's prudish when it comes to these matters, and they don't really like it, but on the other hand, they have a kind of a Chinese uh, way of live and let live. You know, you do your thing, I do mine. But it's, uh, but with all these things, just the same with LGBTQ, it's like, yeah, go ahead and and do that or be that or that can be your identity. Just don't talk about it. Just don't do it in public. Don't, don't ask. Don't tell. Yeah. Don't ask. Don't tell. Don't as long as you're doing it in private and you're not writing uh, articles about it, then, you know, whatever. What do we care what you do? And that's kind of a trademark of the party. You don't have to believe it. You just have to either mouth the slogan or don't mouth anything else that, that, that the party doesn't want to hear. But a lot of these NGOs, all these things are dying out, not because the party really cares about it. it it's, it's that they don't like the, these these movements ability to, to muster lots of cra large crowds and lots of people that are invested in it in a kind of a, of, a, of a charge or a kind of a cause. So you could just be a Pokemon society and they would say, look, there's 10,000 people in this parking lot playing Pokemon and they would, they would squelch it. They would make it illegal because they just don't like people getting together in a park. So the NGOs and all, and these movements, LGBTQ has not gone away from China. It's just that the idea now is don't pass out the, the red, the, uh, the rainbow flags, which some students were doing in Tsinghua, right? Go ahead and be gay, whatever. We're not going to arrest you for being gay. 
but just don't pass out those flags. Don't tell anyone that you're gay, <laughs> or at least don't publicly show symbols of pride. So that's the, for, as I see it, that's the issue. And so the, the death by a thousand cuts has come from that kind of pressure. They don't go in and root out the, the actual cause or, or, the, or, the, or try to force people into their own ideology. They just want those opposing or those uh, alternative uh, ways of looking at the world to just be silent. Moving from the public discourse stage or the public square to the musical stage. I want to talk about this. Have you had any uh, issues with performing in the last uh, couple of months? Anything you, you can talk about on air? Uh, well, we t- I think we talked about that a little bit on the last podcast. But quite frankly, this is one place where I think there might have been a little bit of foreign media overhyping of this thing. There were some crackdowns and there were some renewed uh, scrutiny on uh, foreign musicians playing gigs and playing in bars where, for which work for which they had no appropriate visa, perhaps, or, or, or some dodgy permission to do this sort of thing. And part of those, part of these shutdowns may have been the result of more of what we call, uh, the thing we were more worried about now is the jubal, the reporting uh, at the lower level, the citizenship level, where people, Chinese people are reporting things they don't like. And there were a lot of, of course, in local musicians, Chinese musicians, who maybe don't like some of these foreigners playing because they, they steal their jobs. There may be some, there's some indication that some of those uh, in police investigations were the result of someone squealing on them, if that's the right word, ratting on them or whatever, and, and forcing the cops to come in, the Chengguan to come in and do something about it. And it was quickly picked up by the foreign media. Basically, things have kind of returned to normal in a very sh- short period of time. And I haven't had any so, problems. So they have it, though. I, I thought the same thing you did. Uh, we talked to Andy last time. I was like, you know, this is just a bunch of local officials getting out over their skis. And this is all being blown out of force for the foreign media. And then I'm not going to get into specifics, but there were some cases over this past weekend of uh, foreign musicians getting hauled off to the pokey. Oh, it seems yeah. to be group. Yeah, I don't want to go into the right. details because okay. uh, yeah, I don't want to go into the details too much because the uh, person involved obviously doesn't want to doesn't want to have right. a broadcast yeah. and the people involved. But there were a couple of incidents actually over the weekend involving musicians. What is striking to me a little bit is that it seems to affect some places, not others, some districts, not others. It is hit or miss, but it certainly right. has put a chill on people who wish to perform and certainly for those people who are caught up in the dragnet so uh, it's it's a major deal it's a uh, it's right. something that you know if, they, if your hobby is playing playing on stage and open mics and things like that well guess what you're probably not going to be doing that anytime soon right but, it's a, but, but on the other hand all kind you got bars and clubs all around town they're still putting on shows so right you know, I, i'm honestly not sure what's happening behind the scenes but the fact that this is still kind of a worry, this is still a threat, whether it's unemployed musicians diming in their foreign competition, whether it's certain bars that haven't paid up to the uh, local policeman's benevolence association, or whether this is simply, you know, one district is cracking down and another district is not. Yeah, but. That's, that's what I wanted to say. Uh, doesn't this just kind of mirror what we were talking about during the COVID period? There's, we, we tend to think they're monolithic, the government, but they're fiefdoms. And they handled, you know, they handled COVID different in different fiefdoms. And I think this might be the same, as you said, the same thing with these musicals. Some of the cops are cracking down because, you know, their particular bureau's chief decided to do it and the other ones don't. So you might, I think that's probably right. I think the effect of all of this, though, the, the effect of all of these kind of closures, the fact that the cultural spaces are closing, 
you know, and, and you're right, people coming in for the first time, the students who are here for the summer, teachers who are arriving in the fall, these kind of things, they, they, they don't notice this. And, and you and I, I suspect, run the risk of being like the cranky old guys. Well, you know, you should have seen it back in the day when it was awesome. Right. And like we used to have, <laughs> we used to do jello shots with Hu Jintao and it was crazy. <laughs> but, could... but at the same time, we have perspective and we know what's missing. And that is a pain. And we're not the only ones. I feel like there are many reasons why. Uh, there was a huge exodus of foreigners in the last five or six years, starting before COVID, and of course, accelerating during COVID. One of the things that we've noticed, you know, now that China has reopened the world, in the words of the, the CCTV newscast, people aren't com- people are coming back, as you said, but they're not coming back in the same numbers. And this has become this has gotten noticed, at least in some corners of academia and some corners of government. And, and one of the thing, one of the one of the articles that many people are talking about this week uh, was a speech that was given uh, by a professor academic named Wang Wen, who's attached to People's University. He gave a speech at a conference in Tianjin. Speech and the article were picked up and translated by the excellent substack Kikinology. And, you know, this the speech basically argued that we're talking about being a global society. We're talking about being open to the world. We're talking about being part of like a, a, a world discourse. And yet, you know, the environment inside China is not welcoming to foreigners. And there's a lot of reasons for that, starting from infrastructure, the inability to access payments if you don't have WeChat and Alipay. There are some practical on the ground logistical challenges to coming here. But also mentioned, and, and I'm glad they did, you know, just a general environment, the really general environment and increased hostility towards foreigners and that foreigners are a handy scapegoat for all kinds of things that are going on or perceived to be going wrong in China. And, you know, again, not unique to China. The use of foreigners as scapegoats is like the first page in every blue pr- in every plan book for a playbook for almost every government around the world. But you know, we live in China. We are foreigners, as we are constantly reminded. So it affects us. And this Wang Wen article. Well, first of all, David, I want to say, did, did you see this article? And I wanted to get your first thoughts. But then I, I wanted to break down some of the numbers from the article that I, I thought really illustrated kind of the challenge going forward. Yeah, I thought it was a, a rare kind of moment of, of refreshing, you know, uh, honesty. I mean, th- yes, it, the numbers are pretty dire and you can yeah, break them down. Um, it was it was the first article or not the first article, but it was the first sort of very public uh, expression of something which I think that a lot of people feel, which is this notion of the, the two societies uh, sort of decoupling or a cold war a new cold war or the fact that you know we sh- one that one that one culture and one and the two economies can sort of split apart and be separate entities is just it's just absolutely ridiculous it's just absolutely crazy and most people you talk to say it's not only that it's just too late to make such a, a change but to even go in that direction is disastrous for both sides i mean it's not it's a it's a kamikaze mission you may succeed but we're all going to hurt for it so I was glad to see, uh, you know, Wang Wen's uh, speech. But for me, uh, the, for, the takeaway for me was I was really surprised at some of the statistics, actually. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things I found, this is just casual conversation, even before I shared the article with some friends. A lot of people I, I know in Beijing who are pretty well plugged into the global information universe, they're not completely aware of just the general, how the mood has shifted towards China and being in China in the last three, four years. I mean, they're aware that they, 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 the Chinese state media constantly reminds people that there is, of course, anti-China rhetoric throughout the United States media and government, but they don't 
seem to talk about how that's actually influencing public opinion or the fact that many people are leaving China for reasons that have not always uh, to do with COVID. So give me, let me give you some of these numbers. One of the numbers that, the, that Professor Wong cited was that the number of people from France, for example, in the last 10 years has dropped from about 15,000 to 10,000. Number of Americans has dropped nearly 23% from about 71,000 to 55,000, also in roughly a 10-year period. And as we were talking about before we started taping the pod, of those 55,000 Americans, I'd be curious to know if that includes people who are from, who are from China with U.S. passports living back in China, because if that's the right. case... I mean, half the half the kids in my compound under the age of eight are you technically U.S. citizens. The the number that the number that floored me though, the number that just shocked me, Shanghai. In 2011, according to Professor Wong, 208,000 foreign nationals living in Shanghai. That was down to 163,000 in 2021, which means these numbers were calculated before the lockdown right. last year. Right. And and one can only imagine how many of those 163,000 are still left? And, and those people who left, how many are there? How, how many people are coming in to replace them? And the, the number that, that Professor Wong comes up with is he says, well, you know, only about 0.05% of the total population in China is, is, is from, was born abroad. And by comparison, he cited, for example, you know, Japan, the Republic of Korea, not two nations known for their incredibly open welcoming of immigrants, you know, if you know what I mean. Right. Yeah. Uh, both both have a, both both about two percent uh, foreign nationals, and of course, when you talk about places like the United States, which about seven and a half percent are are non-U.S. citizens, probably about thirteen points, approximately thirteen point six percent of people living in the United States are are uh, from are born abroad. Um, in the U.K., that number is about nine percent. Germany, it's eighteen percent. Um, and even in, you know, trying to kind of think of a cultural comparison, right? Taiwan, mm-hmm. about 3.4% of the people in Taiwan are were born abroad. And, you know, the number in China is quite low. And I'll be honest, I don't expect it to get any higher. And if it does, and this is where Professor Wong lost me a little bit. He's like, well, you know, and the biggest problem is the people who are coming in, they're not coming from the right countries. You know, they're not coming from the developed countries. He kind of goes full like, you know, 2017 Donald Trump. He's like, you know, they're just coming from the poor countries. Like, you know, the people there we don't really want. But, the you know, the more developed foreigners aren't coming back. And I kind of got what he was saying, although he he definitely did not express in a particularly sensitive way. I want to what's your take on these numbers? I mean, do they reflect a reality? Are you more optimistic than I am? Yeah, the the numbers are. Kind of amazing, actually. I mean, they're, they're, it's numbers you don't really see. We haven't really dealt with them, but uh, but I, I think there, there's many, and of course there's multifaceted explanations for all these. You're talking about different countries, different attractions, different kinds of soft power, and so on and so forth, right? But if you look at, you know, if I'm just going back to China and looking at some of these problems that that are having now, China, the, the changes that China has gone through since uh, in the last ten years, twelve years. Uh, and then also ones that were happening somewhat beforehand that were sort of endemic to the system have just only gotten worse. I mean, I would just pick one, take one simple example that's in our sphere of influence or a sphere of work. If you if you look at the uh, academia uh, at the tertiary level, universities and colleges in the United States and in most European countries, and you look at the names on faculty doors, professor doors, you're going to see 
names people from you know people tenured professors from India and from you know from 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 many from some even now from China, many from South America, many from other all sorts of different countries, right? You go to MIT and you know half the uh, half the popu- half of the pro- professorial ranks are from not from the United States. They're immigrants who have come there, you know, and gotten PhDs and gone on to study. And you look at China, that it's it's not exactly that they well, it's it's complicated, but the, the way that the Chinese academic system is set up, it's almost it's almost set up as just implicitly to exclude such a possibility of a of a foreign professor to come here maybe get a, a you know postgraduate degree and then actually get a tenured position at a major chinese university it just doesn't happen and you wonder oh, come on <laughs> daniel bell the <laughs> dean in shandong yeah. university right oh yeah i recommend looking at his book by the way his new uh, his new book about that it's worth it's worth looking at it definitely is worth looking at but yeah daniel bell's exception there are a few other exceptions actually to tell the truth i mean there are some professors at peak university from Italy, for example, who are, have been there a long time. Of course, they're not. They're usually in uh, something like history or, or art history or something fields in which they have expertise in which it w- wouldn't any anything they said or wrote wouldn't r- risk uh, approbation. But just overall, is it how can you have a world class economic? Or, or, I'm sorry, how can you have a world class academic university system and not have it be open to you know in, you know the, the best talents from abroad? Because uh, you know, many of these people, the reason they flock to the United States and other countries is because they do come very often from, from underdeveloped countries or countries where their, their career trajectories would not be anywhere as illustrious as it would be if they attached their name card to Harvard and Oxford and Yale and so forth. And so they, they flock to the places where they had the best universities. That's why universities are soft power. People flock to universities. That's why we have 300,000 Chinese students studying in the U.S. right now. Because that degree will mean something, and they can go on, right? And you and you wonder, you know, why are so few students here? Why are there so few foreign faculty here? <laughs> that's, I mean, that's a good question. Why doesn't Beidat you know, have more foreign faculty that are there for life? And right now, there's a big push. They they want that, and they they understand my issue that I mentioned. They 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 need to have to have a world class university. You do need to have uh, a diverse and uh, high level international population or um, international faculty they would like to but they th- they they're doing it with money they're they're they they want nobel prize winners they want people who are have already published have a lifetime of published papers uh, but they're just hoping that if they dangle a million dollar 2 million dollar you know salaries at them that they'll rush in and it's not going to happen they may be able to do that with their genomics department or their computer science department, maybe, but you're not going to have a first class, you know, uh, diverse prop curriculum department with these foreign teachers like Oxford, Cambridge and all these other universities uh, if, if you're going to leave the system, you know, the way it is in terms of academic freedom. So, I mean, that's just one example. This is one example. You could ma- name many more, you know, the fact that, as you say here, the red tape, just the, just the fact of getting established here, setting up a, co- a company and so forth. You face so many, so much red tape that it's just not not the case with with many other countries where everything is open and as long as you're part of the system, you have you know you have equal access to everything. Here, there's always rules and regulations that that make you special. That means you got to get a special certificate to do anything, and so people give up, they leave because there's no there's no way to carry out their activity here. So I don't know if that adds up to the same note to explains the numbers, but there's certainly whole swaths of these areas. I mean, look at it this way. Look at the look at the flight of of 
people that are uh, uh, not necessarily these people who are doing technical fields, STEM fields, but really talented people in arts and humanities are fleeing China, you know, in droves because it just is not the place to be a creative artist. And they go, they leave, they struggle with English. And some of the, you know, best known artists, poets, I mean, you don't even have a, a, a poetic tradition here now. Yeah, I mean, you have a perfect tradition, but you, you don't really have poets that have their own, uh, what's the word, their own school, like the like the Misty poets, the Menglong Shu, right? Those kind of things. It just doesn't exist here. People don't do that anymore. So you, you go overseas. And a lot of the, these famous poets, like Bei Dao, they're, they're not in, they're in China. They can't do their work in China, so they go overseas. I might also mention, you and I remember, because we gave infinite numbers of talks at places called The Bookworm and Capital M. And these were places where we could have very open public talks, conferences on many different you know, aspects. And we would have illustrious people like, uh, I don't know, Evan Osnos, who was here for a while, Ian Johnson, who was here, Gotti Epstein, Epstein, I guess, um, Jeremiah Jenny, you know. <laughs> Who we were there giving? I was actually at, I was actually at one of the last uh, one of the last bookworm events was uh, me and uh, two teams one with me and one one against a team with Ian Johnson. Yeah, uh, it was the smackdown between. Oh yeah, which was the better dynasty, Qing dynasty versus yes, Ming dynasty? That was a and uh, great one. That was a great one. Yeah, Ian Johnson sort of, e- e- oh, lost that. <laughs> Ian, 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 love Ian to death. Brilliant guy. I'm a huge like admirer of Ian, but he's. I think he. I've seen him grumble a little bit on Facebook about that when he still gets brought up. He's yeah. Somehow, like he feels like there was like a a fast one pulled on the audience or something. Yeah. Right. That's another. That's another disappearing space. Right. Because because the problem with these disappearances is there's kind of a ratcheting effect. Right. So the bookworm goes away and you say, well, where's going to where's the new bookworm going to be? It's not. It's a ratchet. It's, that's that's it. The end of that. You can go backwards. You can go sideways, but you can't go forward. So you won't see. And, and you know, part of it is there's no interest on the part of uh, the, the municipal government or anybody to keep those things going. That's not that's not going to get them a raise or get them praise. So if they go away, there's, they're not going to be sort of forgiving and allow another one to take its place. It's, if this one's gone, it's gone forever. And that's that's the, one of the tragedies of, of things, things like the bookworm. Well, I have to say, I mean, the, it, it, things do look perhaps a little bit bleak. But, you know, I will end this with some cautionary notes of optimism. I mean, I think Alipay and some of the uh, Chinese payment services have started to make noises that they're going to make it easier for foreigners to access their services with overseas bank cards, thus eliminating a major hurdle to being able to pay for things here. I think there is an awareness on some parts of the government, some parts of the official uh, establishment, that there is a there are logistical and also, if we will, rhetorical environmental issues going on here. I think that there are people in the government who feel like China could do a better job about welcoming more people from abroad and being more internationally open. I just like a lot of things here. I feel like those voices probably get shouted down in the meetings by the people who are less uh, fulsome in their cultural confidence to use the current buzzword. So as a result, you know, it seems to be for whatever plans are afoot to make things easier. Uh, it still seems like there's a ways to go, right. but there are conferences happening. You know, there are meetings happening. There are academic exchanges slowly restarting. As you said, there are students coming back. These are all positive steps in a in a direction, and hopefully, that's right. Uh, this continues. Yeah.
Well, David, thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy academic schedule to join <laughs> me here. Thank you all to our listening. And I hope you have a great few weeks. Uh, David and I will be back about, uh, I'd say about a month or so. We'll be doing some archived issue, uh, archived episodes of Barbarians at the Gate coming up while David and I are gallivanting around the world. Although I would like at some point for us to connect from various points of longitude to maybe talk about our travels and what life is like on the outside of China. Because <laughs> I feel I feel like maybe once I get out of uh, China's shadow, I, I, I may see things differently. I may have, I may smile more. Well, you know, they have Baijiu in Oklahoma now. So that's an improvement, right? Yeah, because nothing says Oklahoma to me like uh, Baijiu. Baijiu. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Baijiu. Yeah. Bye, Joe. Uh, all right. Well, thank you. On that note, <laughs> cue the drums. <laughs>